0: Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us. Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin announced that she will run for the open Senate seat that will be left by Debbie Stabenow. We've got uh, Representative Slotkin with us. She represents Michigan's 7th Congressional District. Alyssa, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks for having me. And uh, congratulations on uh, making that decision. Uh, But before we even get to that, um, I want to talk about uh, the process that you used to come to this decision. Uh, You had said before that you were thinking about it. Uh, What tipped this in in favor of, of making a run for this seat?
1: Yeah, well, you know, the Senator Stabenow, who's, you know, done incredible work here in Michigan, surprised the heck out of me and and I think lots of other people by not running again and announcing that in early January. So it took me by surprise and I needed to just make sure I was not jumping into something without um, a clear understanding of what it would take to run a statewide campaign without understanding a path to victory. I'm obviously interested in keeping the seat in Democratic hands, and so what's the, the data-based plan? But then, you know, what do people wanna be hearing about and talking about and having their representative fight for um, in a on a statewide basis? So it's just been a ton of coffees, a ton of conversations, um, a ton of visits with folks who are not in my current district, so a ton of time in Detroit and in the suburbs of Detroit, Um, and, um, we're kicking off a listening tour here later this week in Detroit to officially sort of hear from people. But, um, for me, it's just about making sure I under, I don't go into something, um, kind of, uh, half cocked and, uh, a lot of conversations with people who frankly, uh, I didn't know.
0: Mm -hmm. So, so the Senate is a really different body than yeah. the House is. It's changed a lot too uh, over the, the the kind of recent years. Um, I, I, I kind of feel like there are two different kinds of of people in the Senate, though. Uh, in some ways, um, there are folks who who really focus on their home state and. Uh, advocating for that home state in 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 many different spaces. Um, and then there are folks who who make it more about uh, kind of national issues and national oh. representation and and I, I feel like that's a choice that that people make oh. when they get to the Senate uh, what kind of Senate office they they want to have. I wonder if you've given uh, thought yet uh, to to what kind of senator you would want to be.
1: Well, I think for me, um, you know, that you are elected by your state. So your first and primary obligation is to represent your state and advocate for your state's interests. And, um, you know, I think as a senator and one of 100, of course, you're asked to comment on lots of national issues. But if you, frankly, lose your moorings and don't remember who it is that is your boss, which is the people of your state, you're in trouble, I think. And um, so, you know, I can only tell you past behavior is the best indicator of future behavior. I've been a congresswoman for four years. And um, while I'm a national security person by expertise and am asked to weigh in on that, Um, a bunch. Um, My first and primary focus has been on Michigan. And that to me is what I will do as a senator. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: So um, as you point out, you've got this incredible background in national security. Uh, Is that going to be that that expertise, uh, kind of a centerpiece of of your campaign to Michiganders or uh, are there other issues that you really want to focus on?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, because you're my background as a CIA officer and at the Pentagon and, you know, the people, uh, you know, will always, I think, come to me for national security issues. But um, for me, it's really been about redefining what we mean by Homeland Security. Right. If you can't live a middle class life, if you can't afford to take your kids on a vacation every couple of years, can't afford to have a little place up north on a salary, um, even though you do everything right, work 40 hours a week and stay out of trouble, something is wrong. And for me, if we don't have a strong middle class, um, that is not good for the economic security of the United States. So I think it's, a, it's, for me, it's just been a real redefinition. And that was brought home a couple of weeks ago, right, when we had what's, for me, my second school shooting in my district mm-hmm. um, at MSU, right, protecting our kids in their sanctuaries. I can't think of something that is more fundamental to Homeland Security. Um, and it's just a, a, a sort of rethinking of what we mean by physical security. It's not just security from a terrorist group or from, you know, a, a nation state that's an adversary. It's about security at home for the people who live here. And that's, to me, Um, much more prevalent for people than any national security issue.
0: We're talking with Representative Alyssa Slotkin. She's a Democratic congresswoman who represents Michigan's 7th congressional district. She announced that she will seek the Democratic nomination for the open Senate seat that we'll have here. Uh, There are folks who believe that the the military-industrial complex here in our country and the focus on militarization and things like that is is a problem. How do you answer that, uh, Alyssa?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting because so much for me is connected back to 9-11 and the run up to first the, the war in Afghanistan, but then really the war in Iraq. Um, I was in New York City on my second day of grad school when 9-11 happened, and that was a major in or out moment for me. I knew by the end of the day I wanted to go into national security um, and protect my country because that was such a searing experience. Um, but as the the year went on um, after 9/11, um, and frankly the the run up to the Iraq War, there were major protests in New York City where I was living against the war in Iraq. And I was already someone who had lived in the Middle East, who had worked in the Middle East, so I protested the war. Right? Anyone who knew the Middle East knew that it was crazy to do a major land war into a place like Iraq. Um, and To be honest, once we went in um, and the situation was done, I mean, that was before I got in the government. For me, I wanted to at least try and get out of the situation in as decent a way possible with least amount of bloodshed. Um, So I spent my life working alongside the military um, so that we could try and fix um, the problem that we created by going in. Um, And uh, I worked, ended up working for whoever was my commander in chief, right? I worked, yes, um, for Bush when he was in power, but then I worked for Obama and was there the first day at the White House that he was sworn in. So, um, and I would say, um, just very personally, um, people who work alongside the military our whole lives are the last people who want to go to war because it is our community and our fan- friends and our family who are the ones sent into those wars. Um, so I, I think the, the, I understand, um, certainly from, you know, reading my bio on paper, why that's going to be something that people ask. But I feel very strongly that, you know, I, I got into uh, this business to to support my country, protect my country um, and to stop bloodshed, to stop the bleeding hmm. um, uh, rather than promote it. So, um, so-
0: so, so this is a this is a, protect, a potential tension i suppose in in the campaign uh for senate uh i i think it's fair to describe you as a, a pretty moderate democrat center left uh a challenge i suppose could could come from somebody further left uh and and this could be one of the the issues that they that they raise is this uh, strain between the focus on national security uh, versus 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 uh, versus other issues. Have you have you considered uh, have you considered that quite yet?
1: Well, look, I, I've been a congresswoman for four years, and I think all you have to do is look at my record on the bills that I've written, sponsored, co-sponsored, and voted on. The vast majority have nothing to do with national security. They have to do with preserving and expanding a middle class mm-hmm. in our in our state that invented it, that invented the middle class. So I think, like, you just, it's one thing to sort of say, "Well, she's got this uh, background." It's another thing to say, "Here's what she spent her actual time on. Here's what she's done on constituent services. Here's how she's had more town halls than probably most elected officials in the state to be accessible." So you know that's that's what I can that's what I have to expose and and bring to people. But in terms of a primary, that's our democratic process. Mm-hmm. I don't fault anyone for you know looking at a primary and looking at getting in and and having that um, conversation. That's how our system works. So that doesn't that that's expected from my position.
0: So so I also am curious about uh, the difference, of course, between running in a congressional district, which is a pretty small part of. Our state and running statewide, and in particular, how you will introduce yourself, I guess, more fully to people mm-hmm. in Detroit. Uh, you have not yeah. had to to appeal to Detroiters uh, for uh, you know for the other campaigns that 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 you've run. Uh, what what's your message to Detroiters, who many of whom don't really know you um, and don't know what you stand for, uh, about what your your role in the Senate would be advocating for us?
3: Yeah.
1: So I've represented mid-Michigan, so Lansing and kind of the surrounding counties for the last four years. Um, and so I've worked extremely hard to get to every corner of that district and hear from people in the city of Lansing um, and in rural places, rural small towns. Um, and I think that uh, my, uh, my approach, just like when I became a congresswoman, was you can't talk about them without them. You got to go and listen to people and just sit with your mouth shut and say, look, I'm thinking of running for Senate or I'm running for Senate. What do you want out of your representative? What are you looking for? What are the key issues? If you were in my position, what's the one or two things you would focus on? So that's why we're starting. uh, You know, I've spent a ton of time talking to people in places like Detroit and the suburbs just in the past couple of weeks and thinking about running but we're officially kicking off our listening tour in Detroit this Thursday. And we'll be in Flint and then in Grand Rapids. Um, it's, it's just a, a process of um, reaching out to people and saying, look, this is who I am. What do you care about? And tell me what you want me to fight for. Um, and that's what I did in my congressional uh, life. And that's what I will do as a Senate candidate. And in terms of what I, my, you know, the message and what I bring and what I'm focused on, Again, like, you should be able, in the United States of America, work 40 hours a week, keep yourself out of trouble, and do well and have your kids do better. The price of healthcare shouldn't be this massive drag factor and prescription drugs. You should be able to send your kids to school and be able to afford that. Do all of those things that our parents often did and sometimes our grandparents did, and then still have some leftover to do something fun every so often. And that's become increasingly difficult. And so economic opportunity, jobs with dignity, health care you can afford, um, a pathway to education that empowers you. These are simple things that have become real complicated. That is what I want to focus on. And look, you're about to talk about uh, power outages and focus on clearly on the Detroit area, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is not by accident that we have historic, longstanding problems with energy issues In the city of Detroit, right? There are systemic issues that have led to the fact that we have so many outages and such late service in those communities. So um, it's about taking on some of those structural issues in particular in Detroit that I want to really focus my conversation on. Okay.
0: All right. uh, Alyssa Slotkin, uh, Congresswoman from Michigan's 7th Congressional District, now candidate for the U.S. Senate. It was really great to have you here. Congratulations again on uh, your decision. I know putting yourself out there uh, to to campaign for office is always a pretty difficult uh, thing to do, Uh, but uh, congratulations, and we'll look forward to hearing more about uh, how that goes.
1: Thanks for having me, Stephen. Yeah.
0: We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more of our conversation right here on Detroit Today. Stay tuned. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you tuned in. Every day, it seems, there's really news about a race of some sort or a candidate who's decided to join a race. That's especially true in the race for U.S. Senate. Now, early on, Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin hopped into that race. This was right after current Senator Debbie Stabenow decided that she would retire after the end of her current term, which is in 2024. And while there have been other folks who have jumped in after Slotkin, including several Democrats and Republicans, she really has been projected to be the candidate to beat. That's partly because her name recognition is so high and in part because she's already raised $5.8 million and has about $3.6 million in the bank as of June 30, according to the Detroit News. But there's an unusual person who has also decided to join the race for Senate this week. Hill Harper, author and actor best known for his role in The Good Doctor, has announced that he will also seek to replace Debbie Stabenow in Washington. Harper is 57 and has never before run for public office. But he's running now as a progressive candidate in the race. He says the most progressive candidate in the race. His campaign is going to be focused on raising the minimum wage, making health care access universal, and alleviating income inequality. Harper was born in Iowa, but he has ties to Michigan. He owns a home here in Detroit and runs the Roasting Plant Coffee Shop on Woodward right in downtown Detroit. What does he hope to accomplish if he is successful in getting the nomination and then winning the seat? And what does he believe are the biggest problems facing Michiganders and the nation? Hill Harper, really great to have you here. Welcome to Detroit Today.
4: Great to be on. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah. So let's start here. Why are you running for Senate here in the state of Michigan?
4: You know, Michigan's my home, and I've had the opportunity to, you know, really meet so many Michiganders and be a part of this great community. And I moved here originally because of the people. Um, you know, I, my roommate for four years uh, at Harvard Law School and the Kennedy School of Government was a man by the name of Brian Mathis, who's uh, a very uh, amazing family from Grand Rapids. His father was. One of the uh, first African American doctors that was a, had a prominent practice in Grand Rapids, and and he was my he was my roommate for four years. And my other roommate uh, was another Michigander named Dr. Charles Boyd, who's still here with a mm-hmm. successful plastic surgery practice. And and um, he was at Harvard Medical School at the time. And so, you know, my my ties back to Michigan date date back then. My father was actually going to live in Saginaw when we were in uh, middle school. He got a job in Saginaw. Um, you know, I was born in Iowa, as you said. But but you know, fast forward to 2011, 2012, there was a, a tax credit for film production here in Michigan. And I came here to do some movies. Um, uh, Rosario Dawson produced one of them. It was uh, Josh Hartnett was in it with me. And I met these amazing people. And it really... You know, people who become my best friends, people who, you know, if I get married, they'll stand up at my wedding, th- th- that type of relationship that you often actually don't make, I think, later in life. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and I said to myself, you know, when I have kids, I didn't have kids then. When I have kids, I want to raise them here because I'd like them to turn out like folks here more than folks in Hollywood. <laughs> and, and so um, I adopted my son December 19th, 2015, the day he was born. And I started looking for a house here. I bought a bought a house here in Detroit, and um, and you know for the last seven years I've been I've been here and you know bought a business in downtown Detroit. Uh, wanted to um, create jobs for young people. I think coffee represents community. I think it's something that you bring people together through it, through coffee shops and through ideation and folks sitting there talking. And so. I love that business. I feel like it's a business you can do well and do good. Um, You could, you know, returning citizens can get a job, Mm -hmm. learning a skill that can go anywhere in the world. And so that was that emphasis. And, you know, I I wasn't thinking about politics in any kind of way. Um, And but right now it's a different moment, quite frankly, than seven years ago. Mm -hmm. You remember seven years ago is when our politics pretty abruptly, um, you know, and and it certainly started before seven years ago, but it was in your face seven years ago that our politics went from, and this is something I was talking to David Axelrod about when I was sort of consulting with him and talking to him about potentially running for for this U.S. Senate seat. And he said, Hill, um, you know, our politics are always on a constant pendulum between hope and belief and possibility and cynicism Mm -hmm. and division and vitriol and he said you know back when you were helping us um you know in 2007 and 2008 and beyond we were on the hope side of the ball and the change side of the ball and the possibility and the belief side and and then that pendulum shifted to uh vitriol and division and cynicism and he's like you know with your run you know you can push it back Mm -hmm. and that's that, you know, that's kind of the 30,000 foot view, but the much more personal micro view is that my son is seven years old. He's going into second grade. And, you know, when I was driving him to school earlier this year, he, he looked at me and he said, Hey, um, I don't want to go to school. And I said, why? He said, well, because I think they're going to kill me and, and then I'm going to get shot. And they and just, it's just started really thinking, you know, your job as a parent is to protect your kids and make them feel safe. And how much trauma, uh, is he going through every when he has to do these mass shooter trainings? Do we do that at home? Do I say, OK, jump under the c- cupboard? There's going to be a shooter coming in. No, it would be tra- traumatic to kids. Yet we would rather put our kids through that experience than stand up to the NRA, stand up to the gun lobby and the billions and billions of dollars that they make and say, you know what, the life and, and the mental health of a second grader is more important than the way you're trying to frame the Second Amendment. You know, and, and so, it, and good people aren't running for office. They're just not because it's such a despicable, okay. dirty thing. So, and so, so all that said, yeah, that, go ahead. That, That's that's
0: why. Yeah, no, so, that, that's why. Yeah, no, no, I, I, that's a really that's a really compelling answer. To that question, and and of course I ask that question of everybody who jumps into a race for political office, and and you get a wide range of, of responses. Um, sure. but, but but my next question is, what in your experience, and and look, I mean you've done a lot of things, uh, but but what in your experience do you think is the most relevant for? this kind of, of work? And I ask that because you haven't uh, held political office before, of course. Uh, you're not somebody who's working on the Hill or, or you know, in a, a K Street lobbying firm even. I mean, what what is it about this work that attracts you? And what is it about your experience that Michiganders should say, hey, this is somebody who could represent us well in the U.S. Senate?
4: Well, you know, for me, the last four months I've been traveling around the state meeting people talking about this and trying to really understand if there's a, a way to have real positive impact. And that's, that's the whole thing. I've always lived my life with this idea that we could have positive impact and legacy and certainly making this big a life change. I'm not interested in doing it in some type of performative capacity. This is about, could I actually create, real positive impact for michiganders and for folks in terms of representation and so you know the fact that i'm not a politician for me and don't have political experience in that way is a good thing because i believe people want representation that number one listens to them number two acts in their best interest as an agent for them and number three has a mix of life experience that allows them to represent them in a body like the senate you know this This type of legislative body, unfortunately, has evolved into a very undiverse body. You know, what's interesting is that if I'm elected to the U.S. Senate to represent Michigan, I will be the only current active dues-paying union member in the Senate. Hmm. And one of only two that has, I think, real deep Senate ties, Jackie Rosen from from, uh, Nevada has deep union ties, but is no longer a member of her union. And that's shameful. That's shameful. We need in that hundred person body, that type of representative. I'd certainly I'd be the only, only the third democratic African-American in the U S Senate, which right. again is shameful. Um, it's also, I hear from Michiganders that they're very disappointed and upset that we've gone backwards. You know, for the first time in 57 years, we don't have an African-American Represented a Democratic representative, you know, in Congress in general, and so, so, so the the, the and, and and I'm not just talking about racial diversity. I'm also talking about the other types of life experience. I'd be one of very few small business owners. You know, I feel extremely strongly about the the need to support our small businesses and economic development in communities. Small businesses are the engine that create jobs and opportunity for folks in communities. Yet. We don't support them. We do a very good job bailing out banks. It's no wonder many of our senators are either former bankers, investment bankers, consultants, and or lawyers. Um, so therefore you 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 always fall towards hmm. your life experience. so you want at least someone to counterbalance that that actually has run or is running a small business to say, you know what, these jobs are important. And you know what, having a living wage is important because I know these workers and I know what they need. Um, we, you know, like I said, we'll bail out banks in a second, but will we help sm- starting small businesses in their first two years, their most vulnerable time and, and bail them out? But they're the ones really creating jobs and communities. So the only types of people I believe that would, ha- that have that type of, of insight and knowledge are folks that have had that type of life experience. I'm also a single dad. There's a whole lot of single parents out there. And I understand the challenges of what it takes. You know, um, early childhood education, how important that is. Um, Child care and the cost of child care. I'm a cancer survivor. I healthcare. You know, both my parents were doctors. And I'm a cancer survivor who's gone through that system as a patient. And then President Obama did appointment to the president's cancer panel. So I have worked in government. We worked with an National Institute of Health, the NIH. We worked with folks from the CDC. We made recommendations to the White House about cancer policy. And then, of course, having my Harvard Law degree as well as my degree from the Kennedy School of Government, I do joke with um, Barack Obama that I'm the one with a degree in government. So, you know. You know.
0: And <laughs> not him, right?
4: <laughs> <laughs> not him. So, 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 so whatever. But the point being is that I think it's a mix of experiences that we want our representatives to have but the most important thing is we want to trust and believe that they're going to fight for us, not, you know, for the actual people, Michiganders that I've talked to in union halls, talked to in farmer's markets at their dining room table. I'm talking about across whether it's the upper peninsula, you know, up in Traverse city, across over in grand Rapids, um, or, or, or right here in Southeast I've talked to so many and they say the same thing. They say that they don't feel, like they're represented in Congress. Now, what's interesting about this, which is great, is that they do feel that this triple blue leadership in Lansing is representing them. Um, And they do feel that the legendary Debbie Stabenow has fought for them over all these years. And, And so they feel that, but I think they want bold leadership that they can trust that will represent their best interests in Washington yeah. as a U.S. senator. that's At least that's what I'm hearing consistently. And I hope your listeners feel the same way.
0: Yeah, we're talking with Hill Harper, uh, an actor and author who lives here in Detroit, uh, owns a business in downtown Detroit. He announced this week that he will seek the Senate seat being vacated by Debbie Stabenow in the 2024 election.
4: Uh, you know, the fact that we have allowed politics to extend out these races now let's be really clear this is an open seat open seat democratic primary and people were saying that if i'm and it's august 6 2024 and people were saying months ago that if i'm thinking about running i'm already late now the why has this happened let's Mm -hmm. let's break it down very clearly why this has happened it's happened because incumbents and the establishment are have have more advantage the longer you can stretch out a race and the more expensive you can make it. Sure. Why? Because it, you, if you already have a funding apparatus in place and you already have a, a, a whole organization in place, uh, and here's the sad part, and you in certain ways suppress turnout, incumbents – tend to win yeah. when you know and, there's and, no and question look
0: the money the win. money angle is is the thing that that really has just absolutely perturbed our politics i mean they they are very different than they were even a decade ago Let, let's talk about the money in this race as i said Alyssa slotkin who's a member of congress from michigan and running for the seat on the Democratic side as well, has already raised $5.8 million. This is a lot of money uh, for, again, uh, almost 18 months before the election. Uh, what role do you feel money will play? Also, uh, draw some distinctions between yourself and uh, Alyssa Slotkin, somebody who has an awful lot of politics and government experience.
2: Well, well, Well,
4: first I'll say that, again, it's so far— In in advance of the primary that I think it's even um, somewhat problematic and disrespectful to people to to the other candidates, as well as the people who may get into this to to sort of focus in on it as a binary uh, type of situation to focus in on one specific candidate. You know, I have respect for any person who raises their hand to serve. You know, because because this isn't easy. I mean, I mean, I just launched yesterday, and be, be, before I, when I was headed from the first launch event in Detroit to the second one in Pontiac, the NRSC had already put out a lying ad about me, that's saying in a quote that, you know, I it just lied, and I was like, wow, this. I mean, you know, I just launched, and they're already lying about me in an ad that they're paying to push out, and so. So I, I don't think at this point we need to be talking about other candidates in this. I just want to let people get to know me. Okay, to be quite clear. honest, because I don't want to fall into the same traps that I think and the same tropes that actually have marred our politics. That's the type of thing that marred our politics from the from the from the get go. So 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 let me say this: the money is. Her, her, is super important, right? And so, but my campaign is going to approach it very differently. We're, we're a grassroots campaign. We're going to have to rely on the small dollar donor who sets up, you know, the $5 recurring, <laughs> you know, donation. It's, we've seen it happen before. You know, obviously, President Obama did it extremely well in 2007, and other candidates have followed that model. But, you know, folks are going to have to go to my website, you know, hillharper.com, <laughs> and put in $2. Well, put in $1. It, It's not going to be the big donor class. The other piece is that if I am elected senator, I will f- I will fight to, number one, restrict the time that candidates can actually be candidates and run. Um, because, again, well, the longer you're extended out, the fewer the people boy, that's can that's bumping up against
0: some First Amendment protections, isn't it? Well, not not at all. If, if you know,
4: there are rules about declaring a candidacy with the mm-hmm. Federal Election
0: Commission. Mm-hmm. You know, I
4: mean, listen, you, what I'm talking about is not about talking about issues and talking about what you'd want to do to represent people. I'm talking about, so when about and how money you, and,
0: right.
4: I'm raising money and how you actually file, what how long you have to actually raise money. Also, spending limits in terms of campaigns. That's critical. Right. It should not be. And also dark money. You know, also Citizens United, we could get into all of these things that can help actually democratize the process. You know, this is an open seat, um, you know, without question, the control of the Senate is going to run through Michigan and it has to stay in Democratic hands. It has to. A Democrat has to win this seat. Okay,
0: we're gonna we, we need to take a quick break, uh, okay. and when we come back, we're gonna uh, continue talking with Hill Harper about his campaign for Senate. We're gonna get to some phone calls as well. Some folks here in Detroit have some questions for him as well. And we'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and I'm really glad you've joined us. We've got Hill Harper with us. He's an actor and an author, of course, also owner of a small business in downtown Detroit. He's been living here in Detroit for several years and announced that he will challenge for the U.S. Senate seat that's being vacated by uh, Debbie Stabenow. Uh, Let's start today with Mo in Detroit. Mo, what's on your mind?
2: Hey, Stephen, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, and thank you, uh, Mr. Harper, for being on. You know, my, my question is, you know, we're just coming off of still four years of an inexperienced uh, actor and game show host being the president. That was an absolute disaster for Michigan and the rest of the country. And I'm just curious why, uh, Mr. Harper, you, you think that we should uh, elect you, who also has absolutely no experience in politics, and no, um, you know, no history of showing that you understand the complex terms and, and issues that a senator would face. Do you know about financial services? Do you know what an ESG is? Do you know the U.S. stance on Syria? Would you be a for or against our current strategy? Do you know about uh, issues of housing and the uh, LTV Man. ratio? Like, Do you
0: know these things? Mo, Mo, it's a great question. I'm glad you called. Uh, Hill, go ahead and answer.
4: Thanks so much, Mo. Yeah, I do, actually. You know, the, the, the thing about living your life and being an activist and being appointed by President Obama and also being a small business owner and also just living as a, as, as a, as a concerned human who who wants to try to solve problems, um, you know, through my activism, through the work I've done. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm – you know, please go on to hillharbor.com, check out my background. You know, I'll put my resume – uh, in my history, up against anybody, quite frankly, you know, I think, I think
0: he's asking. I think, some... I think
4: Minnie Racker did a really good job with uh, an article that she wrote for Time. It goes into some of that stuff, and I think he's asking some really technical
0: China. questions, though, about service in the U.S. Senate. The Senate is, yep. and I'm saying this is someone who worked in Washington as a journalist for for a long time. The Senate is probably the most complicated place <laughs> to, to yep. be in government. And, and uh,
2: to, be, to be very
4: clear, it's a legislative body, right? That is charged with um, you know uh, putting forth and approving and or submitting. Uh, uh, laws that we're going to be governed by. And, and a, a lot of those laws have to do with uh, money that's distributed and uh, people's money. And people want to be represented and they want people to be, they certainly want the representatives to be good fiduciaries of their money. And, and, and right now, unfortunately, Washington is broken from the standpoint that the vast majority of our senators don't actually write their legislation and I, maybe people will be surprised to hear that, but it's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Um, lobbyists, uh, so-called consultants, sure. big donors and others hand legislation to, you know, staff. Staff takes paragraphs and things, sometimes the whole thing, un, unedited, and uh, and it's submitted. Um, the, the, the idea that your senator is sitting there like Time's of old uh, writing that legislation. And listen, you know. So how would that be different?
0: Yeah, how would that be different Uh, in a Hill-Harper senator?
4: I am not. How would it be very different is that, uh, you know, I I owe no favors. I don't owe favors to the establishment. I don't owe favors to any lobbyist body or any big donors. Uh, Certainly be an independent voice. Now, Mo pointed out something that I think that we definitely should address because certainly... Um, you know, guilt by association, you know, I think if you look at my history uh, and you look at my politics, I am very, very different than um, the 45th president of the United States. And, and um, you know, and, and folks could, could figure that out. You know, the, the question, though, is for me, um, progressives and folks, I think, that lead with really good, smart ideas – have been out energied by that side of the ball, mm. um, been outworked, and I'm willing. And my life's history shows that I will I will fight and work extremely hard um, to put forth and represent the values of the Michigander in this office. And I think that other actors have actually done well in their representation. I mean, we can, you know, I I was elected to the national board of my union the same board table that Ronald Reagan sat, sat around when he was um, a part of that body. And, uh, you know, we we look at uh, Zelensky, uh, he's doing okay uh, over in Ukraine. So, so, so I think actors uh, can, can be, can, can do well uh, in leadership positions. It's more about the person. And it's, like I said, it's more about a mix of their life experience and what they bring to the table. Certainly, you know, if we, if we want to get real technical, like Mo, we we can talk about, you know, what classes I took at Harvard Law School, (laughs) and what my grades were, I graduated cum laude. So, you know, there were people I went to Harvard Law School with, they graduated. Thank you, Laude. I graduated,
2: actually,
4: Laude. <laughs> so, so, you'll probably you know, learned a couple also, things
0: about government there and at the, the Kennedy School, and for as well sure. As well as my yeah. master's
4: at, at the Kennedy <laughs> right. School of Government. So I, I hope that I learned those things as well. Yeah. So, I want you know, to
0: get to a couple more callers right. here. Yeah, okay. uh, Mo, I really do appreciate the call and and the provocative question. Uh, Glenn. Thank
4: you, Mo. I hope, I hope you learn and do some research about me, and yeah. hopefully you'll be somebody who, who looks at me with a with, uh, you know, just open eyes.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, Glenn, in LaSalle, you're up next. What's on your mind?
2: Oh, so, uh, Stephen, thank you for uh, taking my call, and I really appreciate uh, Mr. Harper being on the radio. I'd like to drill down in uh, your thinking, Mr. Harper, and your ideas associated with a government, uh, specifically in addressing the issue that you emotionally brought up about your son afraid to go to school. Mm. Um, that's, that is a, just a gigantic tragedy and a huge problem. And the the problem is that we have the Second Amendment and that we have the Supreme Court su- su- um, supporting the Second Amendment. Uh, and so I wanna know what is your thinking, what are your ideas about what can possibly be done and passed as far as laws are concerned in terms of protecting children in
0: school from yeah. guns. Great question, Glenn. Great. I love that you called. Hill, uh, go ahead.
4: Glenn, great question. So so first of all, it's a, it's a couple different things, and let me try to break it down as, as fast as I can because I know we don't have a lot of time. Number one, we have to stop allowing other, other people who clearly have um, very slanted motivations about how we allow them to define what the debate is. Um, quite frankly to me, getting pulled into a debate about the Second Amendment um, is not the way to go. You know, there are weapons that we need to classify not as guns, but as weapons of mass murder. And we must ban weapons of mass murder. And we must call them that. You know, the the other, the, the, the far right is very good with coming up with terms that sound good, but it aren't good for anybody like right to work or, uh, uh, you know, citizens United, things like that. Right. And, and, and so we've allowed them to dictate to us that this is a second amendment issue. It's not a second amendment issue. It's unless you get pulled into it. Now, if we're going to get pulled into the second amendment, let's do that real quick. Um, uh, you know, obviously I took, you know, constitutional law in law school. We can talk about the second amendment. It's, second amendment is the only, the, the only place in the entire uh, uh, a constitution where, where we see the word regulation, mm-hmm. well-regulated militia. So, number one, that's one thing. And we certainly qualify um, even other amendments that don't have the word regulation in it. As an example, First Amendment, you know, uh, uh, defamation, slander, libel, these types of things basically is regulating that speech. It's not just free speech saying you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. It's, you know, So the idea that we've allowed the NRA and, and the gun lobby and the money to say that there is zero qualifications for anything in the Second Amendment, even though it's the one place where, where regulation actually – the word actually appears, the only place, is crazy because we've allowed them to dictate the terms. We've allowed them to dictate what it is. And so for me, it's about defining what these are when an arm or, in this term, a gun – when they wrote that, the Second Amendment, it was a, 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 literally a musket that you had to load, and it took you like three minutes to load. And so, therefore, my father used to take me skeet shooting. You know, I'm, I don't want to touch anybody's gun. I don't want to, your rifle, your shotgun, have that. But if it is a high mag load weapon that can kill more people in 15 seconds. In a crowded room, then it's a weapon of mass murder, so, and therefore it should not
0: be allowed. So I, I mean, I, you know, I think a lot of people would agree with that kind of distinction, and especially people, you know, listening to this show, and 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 I would count myself in that category as well. The problem is that in order to get anything done, you've got to convince people who don't see it that way uh, to, to to embrace that that a that approach, and that's where it's it breaks down every time in in Congress. It's and and here in Michigan for 40 years, it was impossible to pass any kind of gun regulation. We just got really the first uh, minor steps uh, in that direction in my lifetime here, uh, because we've got because of uh, the because uh, of the triple blue So outside of that circumstance where you have this kind of majority, how how would you approach? Uh, getting these kind of things done, making making a change.
4: You you, you have to put together a people led movement and coalition, uh, and the level of activity around it has to be and has to match the level of activity that the gun lobby and the NRA. Now the difference is is that they have literally billions of dollars to pour into to pour into the, the lobbying effort. But we have people and we have people that really care about this issue. And if we can organize them in a way that makes sense, that is strong, we can do that together. We have to do it together. It, it only happens in, in collaboration with each other and creating a real movement around issues. We've seen this. We've seen movements around issues work historically. We can look at the civil rights movement. We can look at um, the pride movement. We can look at so many very strong movements that took real organizing, real energy. And that's not to say that people haven't been fighting it and working working on this issue, and I think we're getting close to that place. I I really do. And I think that, you know, obviously sending folks that will, will that will truly fight around these issues because, because remember issues like this are inextricably linked with other issues. They're inextricably linked with issues around uh, policing and crime. They're inextricably linked around mass incarceration. They're inextricably linked around education and, you know, uh, and the quality of education and et cetera. You know, in Michigan right now, is 41st in teacher pay. Right now, we're 49th in growth. Mm-hmm. You know, th- there there are many different issues that, that start to get inextricably linked because um, all of these things affect all of us and affect each other. And certainly as a parent, you know, my son's entering second grade, and um, there was no question that as you think about the school, you think about where, and there he is yelling in the background, uh, where um, he's going to school, he spends more time in that school than he does at home, really, except for sleeping time. So so that's so critical for our young people, and it's so critical for every, every, every single citizen. And I believe that there is a movement, if we can organize it properly, that can change this issue in these next few years.
0: Okay. uh, Hill Harper, it was really great to have you here. I'm going to make you promise before you get off the phone that you will come back and talk with our listeners again as we get deeper into this race. But I really appreciate the time you gave us uh, today. Thanks for being here.
4: Absolutely. Thank you so much.
0: When you think about politics in Michigan, I think it's impossible to not think of the name Debbie Stabenow. The Michigan senator was the first woman to be elected to a Senate seat from our state in 2000 and has established a political career that has spanned five decades. She first became an elected politician in 1974 when she sat on the Ingham County Commission, and she was then elected to Michigan State Legislature before becoming a congressperson and eventually unseating Republican Senator Spencer Abraham in that 2000 Senate race. Senator Stabenow, always great to have you here, but especially today, welcome back to Detroit Today.
3: Stephen, it's wonderful to be back with you.
0: So let's start uh, with why you have announced at this point. Give me a sense of uh, what led you to to decide this publicly, at least right now.
3: Sure. Well, for me, a couple of different things have come together, both um, on the public side and in uh, my personal life. First of all, I have always believed that it's important to know when to pass the torch to the next generation. That's really important to me. I, you know, I started, uh, as you said, I was 24 years old in (laughs) grad school when I first got involved. uh, You know, lights went off in my head here on about... Politics and so on. When I led an effort to save a nursing home in in Lansing area, and it turned out I lived in the district of the county commissioner trying to close the nursing home, and I was <laughs> not very happy with him. And uh, people encouraged me to run, and I did, and and I beat him. And interestingly, he called me that young broad, and uh, the <laughs> young broad beat him. So, uh, but but that really started a, a you know a, 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 a life of public service in the elected office that I hadn't really thought about before. But then there were, um, you know, there were eight women in the State House and none in the State Senate and none statewide. And now it's completely different. You know, governor statewide, 44 women in the State House. uh, um, uh, I think, what do we have, 15, I think, in the State Senate, the new majority leader and so on. So for me, it's, you know, I've always felt I wanted to open doors, keep them open and, and know the time to really pass the torch. And after this last election and all the young people involved and the great people that are now in leadership positions in Michigan, this really feels like the right time Mm. for me to take that step. And it does coincide with personal uh, considerations for me. My mom is 96 years old, mm. and time with her is very precious. And, uh, uh, you know, rather than the rigors of the next two years in a campaign, I think it's also a time when I want to uh, have, you know, more flexibility to make sure I'm there for her. So it, it, it just came together, and I'm confident that I will pass the torch uh, to uh, the next generation of Democratic leaders. And so, uh, but it's um uh, and I think for me doing it now, it's, again, part of what I feel is my responsibility to give people time to make decisions and organize and get their own story and support out there. And so uh, I just think it's uh, it's uh, my responsibility to, to do that. Yeah.
0: So this really was, uh, I mean, a, 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 a late decision. I mean, this is a decision that you made very recently to not. It it,
3: it is in the sense of, I mean, I was planning on on running again. I love, uh, you know, I love the job. I'm grateful for it. But, you know, it um, is something that, um, you know, in the last number of uh, months started to to think about, but Mm. really crystallized just a, a few weeks ago. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay, uh, Senator Debbie Stabenow, it's always great to have you here uh, to talk uh, not just about uh, politics and policy, but, uh, of course, uh, your career. Uh, congratulations on uh, deciding that uh, uh, that, that uh, this will be your last term. And, of course, we will have you on many times before, uh, before you leave after 2024. Um, well, thank you. It's always great to be
3: with you. Yeah, no, great to have you.
0: That's going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow, and I hope you will, too. This is 1019 wdetfm fm Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation.